Well, we have been talking a lot about spending at the legislature. Many questions uh, coming out of various reports. And the latest was the report done by Daryl Plekis, the latest report uh, by Mr. Plekis, not the first one, but this is in response to the rebuttal from the first report. And the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is applauding a move by MLAs in Victoria, this to move to open up the BC legislature to an outside investigation. And this is in the wake of these allegations of misspending of taxpayers' money. So let's bring in Chris Sims of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, thank you so much for joining us once again. Good morning. Uh, applauding. We don't often hear you guys applauding because you're often holding people to task, which is the job that you have. But applauding this, do you think this will help us get to some answers? We think it's good to give a little bit of candy along with our scolding all the time. So when, you know, say, it, say it's good when it is good. Um, my one caution is that I'm, I'm reading that it sounds like there might be only 10 days or so being set aside for this external review. If that's accurate, um, then we need longer than that. This needs to be more of like a full audit. Uh, so, But we are happy to hear the language coming out of LAMSI, the Legislative Assembly Management Committee, um, that is supposed to be um, eagle-eye watching how our money is being spent at the legislature. And so in essence, what they're saying is, yes, they want a retired judge, uh, we don't know who he or she is yet, to come into the legislature and see um, what's been happening with the spending, hopefully, particularly with the legislative staff. So for your listeners, that doesn't mean MLAs. Your elected MLA already has to post his or her expenses along with receipts. However, those folks in the little black and white outfits in the middle of the legislature floor, the speaker, the clerk, the sergeant at arms, and all of their staff, they're not subject uh, yet to proactive disclosure of all of their receipts. And so that's why this investigation needs to happen, because what the speaker found in his last two reports was shocking. And taxpayers need to know what that's happening right away. And I would imagine that, that you might agree that I think it should even go further and not just opening up legislature staff to uh, freedom of information requests. But I don't think it should be something that you have to make that request. It should be like the MLAs. They should have to put their expenses out there. Absolutely. There's no reason whatsoever for you or me as an advocate or a journalist or just your average private citizen should have to put in a freedom of information request to find out what's going on with their money. It's your money. Uh, it should be already on the website. And so whether it's quarterly or every couple of months, yes, all of that should be always posted online. And I do need to stress, the MLAs already do that. The ones that need to face you in the election already do that. It's ironically the ones who never need to face you in an election uh, who already have really cool jobs up until now, even if you wanted to find out what they were spending on lunch or their trip to Hong Kong, you couldn't have found out. The only reason we know any of this is because Speaker Daryl Plekis scanned all of these receipts and released that report. Does it shine a light on, do you think, that even if what was done here and the money that was spent and the amount of money that was spent, we're not talking about something that's criminal because the rules allow it. Does it shine the light on the fact that maybe we need to change the rules? Yes, absolutely. As we saw with some instances in Ottawa, just because it may be by the book or within the rules doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's okay. And I think the average person, um, this doesn't pass the smell test. Um, their common sense kicks in and they start asking questions like, 
Why is the sergeant-at-arms and the clerk traveling to the UK repeatedly? Why are they traveling to Sri Lanka? Why are they traveling to Hong Kong? Why are they going on some strange conference junket to Washington State when the attendees of said conference, they aren't even part of Washington State? Washington State wasn't hosting something. They just went there. And so, this, yes, just because it may technically be allowed to be gotten away with by the book, that means the book is wrong. That means we need to change the book. Uh, and, and because some of the things, and uh, I mean, if we go back to Daryl Plekis when he said, when we start to learn these things, you know, they're going to make you uh, toss your lunch. Uh, perhaps they don't. But they come pretty damn close. When you look at things like, uh, and you mentioned the Washington State, mm-hmm. as if people from here need to travel to Washington State repeatedly to learn about earthquakes and to learn about response regimes to earthquakes. And while you're there, go to Seattle Mariners games, go whale watching and go for expensive dinners all on the taxpayer dime. Yes. And for people who haven't read the report and you're bang on there, um, for people who haven't read the second Daryl Plekis report, it's in response to their really questionable um, excuses as to why they spent this money. So he's alleging that because he has the agenda right in front of him that the clerk allegedly wrote up, um, and he's doing a co- he's doing a comparison between their timeline on their agenda and and receipts that he has. And so in two instances, he says there's one instance where it's written down that they're doing tsunami awareness tours off the coast of you know in the Juan de Fuca Strait and discussion of marine life and looking at the shoreline and trying to prep for a tsunami. Where Daryl Plekis says. Actually, you guys were on a whale-watching tour, and here's the receipt. In the second one, they say that they're in Washington State doing a practice for a mass evacuation, I guess in the event of an emergency or an earthquake or something. Again, Daryl Plekis says, actually, at exactly that time, 12.40 p.m., you were at a Baltimore Orioles-Seattle Mariners game. Here's the Ticketmaster receipt. It's astounding. And so they need to answer to this. Well, and I suppose the answer would be, oh, well, we were in a stadium with a large group of people. So had there been an evacuation, we could have learned all about it. Haven't you ever tried to get out of a parking lot after a baseball game, Dill? <laughs> Come on. It's just, I mean, it's just so offensive. And even some of the the, the rebuttals, and not to focus on the wood splitter, because it is one. Oh, it's, it's my favorite. It's, okay. it's the more bizarre one. But even the rebuttal to that being, well, we need this in case there's an earthquake and we need to split wood to have a fire. We're talking about the legislature. The building is going to crumble. It's <laughs> not that you're, you're last, you're, you're, the top of your priority list is not going to be splitting firewood in that scenario. And if for anybody listening that is going, what? Yes, that's what they said. Go read the written response that Jill's talking about here. And for real, they actually say that in the event of an earthquake, Jill, people would gather, huddle for warmth at the legislature building, and they would need to split firewood to keep them warm. Number one, I'd really like to know when those fireplaces were deactivated. (laughs) I'm guessing 1986. I'm going to put in a freedom of information request to see if I can find out. And two, the best part I found of that explanation was before the firewood part they said that if the building fell down and a wooden beam fell on someone, they would have to drag in this firewood log chopper and cut the wooden beam to rescue the person. Okay, number one, like, that isn't what you would do. Number two, anybody who's used a firewood log splitter knows that you can't just drag it around and start randomly cutting wood. It's meant to split bucked up logs. So say a tree falls down, you take your chainsaw, and you cut it into little pieces like a cinnamon bun roll. 
Then you put one of those little rolls on it and you split it. That's why it's called a splitter. It's not meant to go carving trees apart. And my guess is at these various conferences in Washington State, they didn't learn that the best protocol is to drag in the wood splitter. If so, we're really not getting our money's worth. Deploy the wood splitter. I'm sensing a great Monty Python skit. And I have to laugh, otherwise I'll cry, because we have to remind ourselves the wood splitter cost us more than $3,000, and it's an accompanying trailer cost us $10,000. And what's interesting is that there is this big foo-for-all saying, well, they couldn't store the wood splitter at the legislature because there was no concrete pad for it yet. Number one, that entire back parking lot behind the legislature building is paved. There's pavement everywhere. Number two, in the second Plekis report, it's a little creepy, but he has a picture, a Google Maps picture in front of a residence, I'll put it that way, where there is a concrete pad already sitting there. And they just dropped the wood splitter on it. Like... We need, we need answers here. The key here is we need answers. The two who are named in these reports need to show up at the Lamsey Committee themselves and answer questions themselves in front of cameras so we can all watch it, just like we see on CPAC at Committee in Ottawa all the time. All right. I think you and a lot of other British Columbians would definitely uh, like to see that. Uh, Chris, we will leave it there, but thank you so much. My jade bear is in the mail, Jill. Thank <laughs> you. Well, you've likely been following along, perhaps not all of the twists and turns, but some of them having to do uh, with the former Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould, as well as uh, what is happening in Ottawa. And the latest being the Prime Minister saying that the country's top public servant is well positioned to make sure the government uh, is doing the right Things talking about Privy Council Clerk Michael Warnick after uh, he has told the House of Commons Justice Committee that no improper pressure was applied to the former former Attorney General uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould in dealing with the SNC Lavalin situation uh, that is going to continue uh, playing out in Ottawa. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about this and a bit of a different take on how things have unfolded. And Kyla Lee, who is a lawyer with Acumen Law, has written about this in a blog post, and she joins us on the line now. Kyla, great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me back. Uh, you wrote about this, uh, posted it uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, what is your take then on how things are unfolding and continue to unfold in uh, this situation? Well, I mean, obviously, nobody can really know why um, Jody Wilson-Raybould was shuffled out of the Justice Ministry. But if you look at her track record as the Justice Minister, the legislation that she introduced, the way that she performed the task given to her in her mandate letter, uh, to me, one significant explanation is that she just did a really poor job. And and in what scenario or in what cases do you think she did a poor job? Pretty much everything that she was asked to do by uh, the Prime Minister, she did poorly. There was uh, obviously cannabis legalization, which has been the subject of huge criticism from um, activists for legalizing some cannabis for some people, making penalties for uh, cannabis offenses harsher in certain circumstances, continuing to criminalize individuals, continuing to make it more difficult for people who are of color and and Indigenous people to engage with cannabis in a lawful way. Um, The impaired driving changes that she made um, that were not even part of her mandate letter to deal with alcohol that have been widely uh, criticized as being unconstitutional. I mean, those are just two very minor examples. Uh, do you think it's fair, though, to point the finger solely at Jody Wilson-Raybould in that she she was the AG, but she didn't act alone in doing these things? These would have been big jobs and big changes that would, would have been would have had input from a lot of people. 
Oh, to be fair, she she would have had input from a lot of people. These bills were studied at, you know, at committee and they were passed by the government. But she was the one who, at the end of the day, was responsible for creating this legislation and making sure that it got passed. And when there were significant changes to the impaired driving law, for example, by the Senate, um, they removed the mandatory breath test provisions in their vote um, and sent it back to the House of Commons. She came out publicly and said that the random breath testing was the centerpiece of that bill. And that was her position that she was taking publicly. So it wasn't something that was the responsibility of everybody. This was, was her goal that she was driving. And so what would you say? I would imagine there might be some that would uh, that would read that and listen to, to you saying that but, and saying, OK, but but wait a minute. You're a lawyer. You you make a lot of your living dealing with these cases. Of course, you don't like those changes. Well, of course I don't. But the reality is that the more people that you prosecute for more offenses and the more offenses you create and the easier it is you make it for people to become involved in the justice system, the more work there is for me. With these laws that she's passed, um, the reality is that it's going to make my life and my practice and my business more busy. Um, and it's, it, the other laws would have made me less money overall. And I suppose looking at this, and you bring this up in the post as well, is we're, we're looking at two very different things. On the one hand, we look at somebody who was the attorney general and the track record being the attorney general, and then this, the allegations of, of her being improperly pressured in one particular case, dealing with a huge company out of Quebec. I mean, two very different things, both quite troubling. Yes, absolutely. Both are quite troubling. And the idea that there was improper pressure or direction by the Prime Minister to deal with the prosecution in a certain way is very serious. And I, I agree with the public that this is something that needs to be investigated. I'm glad that the, uh, the Justice Committee is looking into this. Um, But at the end of the day, I I don't think it's fair to rush to judgment and say that because some anonymous allegation that has been, you know, exploded into this gigantic issue has been made, that that explains everything that happened here. Um, If you look at the facts and the work that was done in her job and in her role, um, the work, in my view, speaks for itself. Uh, you also brought up, uh, talked a bit about some of the other issues, and these are pretty big issues that she was tasked with dealing with, uh, medically assisted dying, um, the use of solitary confinement. Uh, did you also have concerns with how those were dealt with? Absolutely, and, and so does the public. We've already seen a constitutional challenge to the new medically assisted dying legislation. Um, most people believe that it doesn't go far enough because it makes it very difficult for people who are facing terminal and debilitating illnesses to make the decision to end their lives with dignity. The solitary confinement um, has really been a, a huge amount of hypocrisy from uh, the government. We've seen court decisions in both BC and Ontario striking down the solitary confinement laws. Her mandate was to deal with them and make them uh, something that was far more humane. And rather than follow through on that, she's actually appealed those decisions. And that's a decision that's done at her direction. An appeal has been filed of those decisions. And they've asked the court to grant an order allowing them to continue to use solitary confinement while the appeal is pending. Uh, Do you think anything will change, though, in that there is a new uh, attorney general in Canada? But and again, like you said, it is under the attorney general's direction, but that person certainly doesn't work in a silo. Do you think anything might change with the with the new person? 
I think it's very hard for a new justice minister to go back on legislation that was just introduced by um, the last justice minister and to sort of take the party position from being we support all of these bills to we don't support all of these bills. So I don't expect because of the way that politics go, uh, I don't expect that anything's going to change with what's already been passed. But my hope is that what's coming down the pipes and the new legislation that we're going to be seeing um, over the next few months uh, leading up to the election, I'm hoping that that will be far more sensible and have more of a a sophisticated understanding of our charter rights. Uh, And one other question about this, and and I'm uh, shifting a little bit here, but I am curious on your take because you are a lawyer as well. What is your response? One of the things I found quite odd in this, uh, as everything has been unfolding, was the one comment made by the Prime Minister saying that Jody Wilson-Raybould, had she had concerns about pressure, should have brought them to him at the time, which to me seemed odd, seeing as in that role, she's technically the lawyer for the government. And that would have been bringing concerns about your client from your client to your client. It's something that we as lawyers have to deal with. When you're concerned about the instructions that your client is giving you, whether they're advising you to, you know, to do something that's inappropriate or improper, uh, whether their instructions aren't clear enough, um, as lawyers, we have to have difficult conversations with our clients and say, look, is this what you're asking me to do? Because if it is, I can't continue to act for you. Um, and so it wouldn't be inappropriate for her to do that. And it wouldn't be a difficult thing for a lawyer to do. We're used to doing it and we're used to having those conversations. I think one of the difficulties that she finds is that the Attorney General and the Minister of Justice are sort of the same, uh, occupied by the same person, even though those two roles are inherently often in conflict. And I think government should really revisit the way that those two roles are played by the same person and whether that makes it more difficult for the lawyer side to play out um, their ethical obligations. All right. Uh, It's an interesting uh, take on this, an interesting column. Uh, Kyla Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Appreciate your time today. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Joining us on the line now is Glenn Hansman. He is the president of the BC Teachers Federation. Glenn, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're talking about uh, class uh, composition, I suppose, and this is in response to some concerns being raised in a a Twitter feed that you were involved with talking about parents spending their own money to get their children necessary supports. How did this all come about? There's been lots of stories in the media over the past couple weeks that um, spilled over from last school year where students with special needs in particular are bearing the brunt of staffing shortages, uh, both staffing shortages involving teachers and also education assistants. And there's still, at this point in the school year, like last school year, lots of jobs that are vacant around the province. Many school districts, including ones in the lower mainland, are having trouble filling absences of both teachers and education assistants on a day-to-day basis. And unfortunately, there seem to be a few school districts that are either sending students home, in particular students with special needs, actually almost always students with special needs, or just denying them the accommodations and the programming they're supposed to be getting. And that's a problem. That shouldn't be happening. There's solutions to those things, but it's, it is really frustrating, uh, particularly when we have this two-tiered education system in BC where there's a private system that exists. And so this creates more pressure on families who have children with special needs to sort of scrimp and save and, and, and perhaps consider private options when all the services should be available each and every day when needed 
for free in their neighborhood public school. Um, there was a, a story, like you said, this has been uh, in in the news over the past few days and weeks. There was a story just a, a couple of days ago in the Vancouver Courier that takes a look at class sizes. Uh, it actually found that while they're creeping up slightly uh, in, in the number of students, but it also found that the education assistance, uh, the supports for teachers, has also increased in a lot of the public schools, which seems to, to be the opposite of what we're hearing from people. Well, our court win uh, two and a half years ago did have the effect of restoring about 3,700 teachers around the province. How that has occurred is uneven just because the court put back language exactly as it was 20 years ago. And so because of the way that the province has funded school districts, basically, you know, exactly to that language and, and not a teacher more, there's a lot of uh, unevenness around the province. And so we're very much interested in filling some of those gaps. It's always within the political power of the province to make sure that West Vancouver, for instance, which doesn't have protections around class size from grades 4 through 12, is funded similarly to all the other neighbouring school districts so that that school district can maintain similar level, levels of services. But the whole recruitment piece of teachers and EAs and retention of these people really needs to be tackled. And there's lots of solutions outside of collective bargaining that don't have to be permanent, that could be sort of time limited, and what could be easily implemented that would help solve this problem. But, you know, at the very least, the Minister of Education, we've been calling upon the province, in particular the Minister, to just put a moratorium on this practice of excluding kids, because there have to be other solutions, and students with special needs and their families shouldn't be bearing the brunt of staffing shortages and things that the province can solve. Right, and I think everybody would agree with that. But what would a solution be then in a scenario where, say we are talking about a class where there isn't an education assistant and there are there are children in the class with special needs, what is the solution in, in the short term uh, to dealing with, with kids that need the extra help and the help simply isn't there right at the moment? Well, there's a redeployment of staff from the school board office. There's redeployment of staff from elsewhere within the school district. The main thing is, is that we wouldn't be having this conversation. A school district would never send home an entire grade four class, for instance. Um, and we don't see instances where they are saying, just picking five random children and sending them home. It's always that student with special needs. And one has to ask, why is that so? Especially when the kids are legally entitled to those accommodations and they have the right to be at school each and every day, just like their peers. And so letting this situation, you know, this started fall of 2017, which is a long time ago now. Lots of parents were raising concerns. Uh, Teachers were raising concerns. The organizations that are out there advocating for families of kids with special needs, like BC Ed Access and Inclusion BC, they were raising their voices and concerns well over a year ago. Now we need some proactive steps because lots of practical solutions have been provided but there's been, um, you know, some action, but not enough to hold this off. Uh, what happens in that scenario, though? And I think any parent that has been on the receiving end of that, of having a child sent home, could attest to how difficult that is for a number mm-hmm. of reasons. What happens, though? Like you said, uh, ch- children have the right to be in school. Does a parent, if a child is, is sent home, does the child have to go or does the parent have to come and pick up the child? Well, that is a really good question. You know, if families were saying no, um, 
it might change the dialogue a little bit. But families shouldn't be put in this situation in the first place. People have jobs. They have to pay their bills. Not everybody could just sort of um, say to their employer, oops, you know, I, I can't work the rest of the day because I have to go pick up my child. It's not as if there's child care around this city or others that is available on a moment's notice. And so it puts families in a real bind. Um, and not all those children necessarily live with their parents. They might be children in care or they might have precarious living situations. And so there's lots of aspects to this that make us extremely worried as teachers about the children themselves, the individual students, um, as well as the overall systemic thing, and that's the attitude towards students with special needs and the treatment of their services and their school experience as if they're dispensable luxuries. Right. And I, I would imagine, too, I mean, it, it, does it not have to be a pretty, um, the, the case to be made to send a child home? I, I mean, does the child need to be destructive or is that there must, I would imagine there's a certain bar that has to be reached that that, that would be a difficult decision, hopefully, for a teacher. Well, it's not actually, it wouldn't be a decision of the teacher. It'd be a decision of um, management at the school district level. Um, and there are children in the system who have some very challenging behaviors, but I don't want to frame the story in a way where it's sort of blaming the child because, you know, there are children who, for a number of reasons, have um, challenging behavior at home, challenging behavior at school that manifests itself in a different way. But at the end of the day, we still have to have the accommodations and support from them. And, and often that's, you know, have a, a smaller classroom situation for them. It's having that EA with them, a guaranteed basis and a structured program to help them learn how to regulate their behavior. And hopefully um, when they get to grade 12, could go out and graduate and interact with the world in a positive way. And so it's um, sort of like looping back to it, the child's behavior puts the focus on them rather than, this is a systemic problem. It's a problem for the adults in the system to solve. And um, there's lots of solutions. We just need to get people together and to move forward on implementing some of the ideas that have already been floated because this has to end. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there, but I'm sure we will talk about this again. Glenn, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for covering this.